Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in this new series we're calling Real Church, and today we're going to talk about being united. And I'm happy to preach this message on church unity from a church and into a church that is unified. I say that for the sake of our guests. You might be here for the first time and you're thinking, oh, there must be trouble at Staples Mill. The pastor's bringing a message on unity. But no, in reality, by God's grace, this is a very loving, unified church. I do have brothers in ministry across the country and around the world who have to at times preach a message on unity to a divided church. That's just not our context here. And so I thank God for that. But we're just walking through 1 Corinthians. We're now coming to this topic. And so we're going to take it on. And I think it's good for us. It's a part of us preserving what God has done here. Now, last time we talked about what a church is. And in that conversation, we talked about God has designed for each of us to belong to two vitally important communities. A healthy family and a healthy church. And we know this, that sin brings division, dysfunction, and damage into any relationship. And that's true in the home. And that's true in churches as well. Back in seminary, I took a class in North American church planting. And I only remember two sentences from that class these many years ago. One of them has to do with church planting. And the other is this statement. I remember my professor saying this at the beginning of class one day. He said, men, there's no pain like marriage pain. Had nothing to do with church planting. But I just remember this professor very humbly just expressing he's going through something at home. And he wasn't blaming his wife for it. He wasn't even seeking pity for himself. But he just, from the overflow of what he was experiencing, men, there's no pain like marriage pain. And some of you could echo that. You had more than just the average spat that couples have. You, you had real marriage pain. You've had real family pain. And let me just add here, if you're going through something like that, we want to be here for you. And you can reach out to one of our pastors. You can use that connection card. You can get in touch with our counseling ministry. We want to help you through those types of pains. But some of you could add to that and say, well, yeah, there's nothing like family pain, but there's also nothing like church pain. And you might be here just remembering, wow, I really, I really was wounded in a church family. And there's something deeply disillusioning about that when you get hurt in a church because our expectations are so much higher for a church. We know out in the culture, people are going to hate us and there's division out there. And when we come into a body of believers like this, we think, I expected this to be a refuge. I expected to be loved here. But in reality, there can be problems in a church. In fact, it's interesting, the context of so many letters in our New Testament is the context of problems in churches. So we're grateful. Even in 1 Corinthians here, we're going to find that Paul is addressing problems in that church. And aren't we glad the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that the Holy Spirit preserved that for us, that we might understand how to handle issues like that in the church. I think we can say it this way. As long as there are people in churches, there will be problems in churches. Because people have issues, we can expect that from time to time we're going to have to deal with issues in a church. We can say it this way, people are messy. And so sometimes church life can be messy. But aren't you glad God has given us everything we need to address problems in a church? That we might resolve problems, that we might then come back to unity and back onto the mission that God has given us. And so we have 1 Corinthians as part of that. Now, Paul, you might remember last week, 
he started off with this greeting to them, and it was packed with meaning. But now he continues on this very positive note as we move into verse 4. So we're going to take on today the good that was going on in the church at Corinth. And then we're going to pivot to the bad that was going on in the church at Corinth. But first, the good. Verse 4, he's going to talk about how they have experienced the grace of God. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul here is speaking of their salvation. Remember, Paul was the church planting missionary that went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. He reached Corinth, a prosperous, diverse, deeply immoral city of about 500,000 people around the year AD 50 or AD 51. And Acts chapter 18 tells us about the planting of that church and Paul's approach. You might remember that Paul was a tent maker there. Basically, he was supporting himself financially while he carried out this ministry there. He was accompanied there in ministry by Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe you know those names if you've read your Bible. Also, at a time during this year and a half he spent there, Silas and Timothy joined him in ministry there. His general method was to go into the synagogue every Saturday and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah they had been waiting for. And there were a number of people from the synagogue who, who left Judaism and became believers in Jesus Christ, accepting him as the Messiah. We might say they became completed Jews and, and trusting in the Messiah, Jesus. And then, then we know that Paul shifted next door to a house once he was kind of kicked out of the synagogue, wasn't invited back in there anymore because of all the fruit. He starts reaching Gentiles next door. So it was a, an especially blessed season of ministry there in Corinth. Synagogue leaders were saved along with their whole households. Remember, we heard of Crispus last time. And Sosthenes, these synagogue leaders were becoming believers. And many, many from a pagan background, leaving their lives of immorality, were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the scripture said back in, in uh, Acts 18, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. Point is, Paul saw all that happen, and he was rejoicing in it even here. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I saw it happen. I was there to watch God do miracle after miracle as you left your past and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Next, he talks about the evidences he saw of that grace in them. Most notably here, he mentions their spiritual gifts that he saw them receive. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks of the evidences that what he saw there really was genuine conversion. By the way, we would expect that, wouldn't we? When somebody walks out of darkness and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they begin to walk in the light, there should be a very visible, notable difference in what their life looks like now that they're in Christ. It'd be very troubling if somebody said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and their lifestyle exactly like every unbeliever in their lives. Or if a person says, oh, oh I'm a Christian, and their life is exactly like it was before they were a Christian. We would expect to see a change. And that's what Paul was saying. I saw this change in you. I saw you leave your backgrounds, trust in Jesus. And I saw God give you spiritual gifts that you began to use. Now, it's interesting that Paul compliments this. 
Because when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to be rebuking them for misusing these very spiritual gifts. But here he just calls out, I saw this change in you. I saw your salvation confirmed in these ways. Now Paul talks in verses 7 and 8 about the security they have in Christ. Verse 7 again, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 8, who will sustain you to the end? guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great statement of confidence in the Corinthians. Paul is confident that God is going to hold on to these troubled Corinthians, and at the end, God is going to complete their salvation. It's really stunning, the words here, they will stand guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful statement. Paul's already said some great things about them in verses one through three. Remember, he already called them saints, not that they might one day become saints, but they already are saints made holy through their faith in Jesus Christ. He said to them, you, you have been sanctified. That's already been done. You've been cleaned up, separated out as God's people. He's expecting them and he's going to call them to repentance. They, they would live like holy ones now. And they're, they're not doing so well at that as we're going to see, but they're called to that in the present. But here Paul then points to the ultimate future in this statement. And he says, and I, I'm confident that ultimately you're going to be finally perfected when Jesus comes again. Do you hear that confidence? Corinthians, I know you met Jesus. I saw you meet Jesus. I saw him confirm it in you. And I know that on the final day, you'll be standing guiltless in the presence of Christ. That's amazing. Paul had the same confidence in the church at Philippi where he said this in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Confident in the Corinthians, confident in the Philippians. And listen, you can have that same confidence as well. If you too have turned from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're keenly aware that you're not perfected yet. You're keenly aware of how uneven your walk might be at times, but here's the assurance from scripture. You too, one day at the coming of Christ, God will have completed your salvation. You too will stand guiltless in the presence of the Lord. And we love to see God do this work of saving people, changing people, even in our ministry here. Yesterday, we had the funeral for one of our members, a woman by the name of Donna Clisso. She died at the age of 60. So it's much too young, died suddenly last week. And so we had the service yesterday. But what is so wonderful is it was just a little over a year ago that Donna put her faith in Jesus Christ. Her brother, Billy Carper, had been sharing Christ with her for years. And uh, finally, she began to attend church here. She was hearing the gospel every week, came to Route 33. And it was after a Route 33 class that she, uh, Donna, and her husband, Ken, came into my office just to talk a little bit further about the gospel. I thought I was there to talk to Ken about his need for the salvation. But it turns out both of them needed to put their faith in Christ. And, and so she did. There in the office, she, she believed that Jesus alone could save her and she put her faith in Jesus. Here's what I want to mention here is I love what I learned this week about her life since she put her faith in Jesus. The changes the Lord was making in her life, particularly her love for the scriptures. So I learned this, that I'd see her here with Ken, but I didn't know this, that they would leave here after worship, after their life group, studying the Bible with them. They'd drive home and they would just chatter about what they had just heard. They were delighting in the scriptures and what they were learning about Jesus. And I thought that was wonderful to learn of that. 
But then they learned that they also were making some phone calls, and they would call loved ones and coworkers and say, yeah, I've learned this wonderful thing from the Bible about Jesus. And so wonderful. What, what a change in just a short amount of months, just a little over a year, from unbeliever to believer to growing in Christ, and then just this promise here. And then in the presence of Jesus, that salvation completed, guiltless in the presence of the Lord. Again, the same confidence is available to you if your faith is in Jesus. Well, Paul now speaks here of this close, personal relationship that the Corinthians have with their faithful God. That's verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These Corinthians, as we're going to see, haven't been that faithful, but they serve a faithful God. And Paul reminds them of the faithfulness of God. But I love here in verse 9, he also speaks of this fellowship this relationship that they have with Jesus. Verse 9 again, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't you love that? That you can have fellowship with Jesus. It's places like this in the Bible that help us as believers in Christ to not think of Christianity so much as a religion. We understand technically we can be grouped as another religion. We know people from the outside look at us and say, you're in that religion. That, that's technically true. But those of us on the inside who've been changed by Jesus, our sins have been forgiven, we don't look at it like a religion. We really do live this out as a relationship with Jesus. We really feel like I'm in fellowship with my Savior, with Jesus. And here's the question, are you taking full advantage of that? Are you walking with Jesus in a relationship with him? Because this is what Jesus is offering to you. Revelation 3.20, listen to what Jesus said to one of his churches. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love how Jesus describes that. I want to have a relationship with you. He uses this analogy of us having a meal together. We're going to linger together. I'm inviting you into relationship. Or how about in John 15 verses four and five, where Jesus said we're to abide in him. That simply means to remain with him. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. So believer, you get to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not some historical figure that you know at a distance. You get to know him. You get to walk with him. You get to talk to him. You get to live your life with him leading the way. You get to experience the love of Jesus in your life and the leadership of Jesus in your life. So Paul here begins here, this letter to this troubled church in Corinth, very positively. And he's affirming them what he saw God doing them. But now he pivots to the problems. And now we'll be taking on problem after problem for the weeks to come. So we've been considering the good in the church at Corinth. But now the bad in the church at Corinth, join me in verse 10. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul here is addressing a report. 
We know this. We know that the church at Corinth has sent a letter to Paul with some questions. He'll get around to their questions deeper into the book of 1 Corinthians. But first he takes on a report that he's received about them. He's learned that they are deeply divided as a church. And Paul said, that ought not to be. You need to agree. In the Greek language, it's literally speak the same thing in idiom, meaning to agree. Paul tells them there should be no divisions in the church. He uses the words schismata. We get our word schisms from that. Don't be split as a church. Instead of disunity, they're to be united. Verse 10 again. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That word same just keeps getting dropped here. And that word being united means to repair or to mend. This word was used in Mark 1.19 of mending fishing nets. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you have torn the fellowship and you need to set about now mending what you have torn. You need to put this church back together. So the, un, the situation unfolds here in verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Presumably Chloe, some think she was a wealthy businesswoman had business dealings there in Corinth, and somehow word then got back to Paul, hey, there's trouble in the church in Corinth that you planted some time ago. There's trouble there. They are divided in the worst of ways. In fact, we're told here the nature of what we're told here are quarrels. It wasn't some healthy debate about important issues. They had an un unhealthy quarreling and arguing going on. Look at it again in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They fell into divisions under the names of some spiritual leaders. And by the way, with no involvement of these leaders, none of them wanted anything to do with this. Paul certainly had no part of them dividing up and some of them using his name. You can tell he's, he's incensed by that. He's rebuking that whole idea. And certainly Apollos had nothing to do with that. Apollos had come through Corinth and had taught effectively, but Apollos would not want nothing to do with the church being divided. And Peter, we don't believe Peter ever went to Corinth, but somehow there was a group there rallying in his name. And then there's a group just talking about, well, I, I follow Christ. So in the life of a church, of course, doctrinal issues can come up that need to be dealt with. And I'm grateful we dealt with doctrinal issues a long time ago. We, we haven't moved off of our understanding of what truth is. What does the Bible teach? We have our doctrinal statements. We're not in the, we're not in the market for new doctrines. So that's all settled for us. We're, we're joining into a church that already knows. This is what we believe. This is what the truth is. We're building there. But here we have a church in Corinth, and they're not even dealing with theological issues. It seems to be matters of preference. We think it may be something like this, that that some of them really liked Apollos when he came through Corinth because he was known as a great orator, very eloquent speaker. And some people might have really been enamored by that. And against Apollos' wishes, he wouldn't have wanted this. But some people think, you know, I really like that style. I really like how he does ministry. I'm rallying to him. Some, maybe the Jewish believers there in the church, they, they liked Peter's style. Whatever they had heard about Peter's emphasis, they, they rallied in his name for some reason. It's understandable why some would do it in Paul's name. Paul was the church planner who brought the church there. Some might have felt a sense of loyalty to Paul. We're rallying in his name. But then still there was another group that said, well, we, we're just of Christ. And if I'd lived in Corinth at that time and there had been a Christ group, I'd have said, that's my group. I bet you're with me. We all said, well, that, that sounds like the right group. Until we recognize here, Paul is rebuking that group too. 
Here's a group with the right rallying cry. They're at least saying the right thing. Hey, we're not going to divide up in the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter. We're going to rally in the name of Jesus. But apparently that wasn't real. Apparently that group was invoking the name of Jesus, but in an unhealthy way as well. You know, people can do that, right? It's easy to invoke the name of Christ and go, I'm for Christ. And sometimes you can do that and just advance your own personal preference in the name of Christ. Jesus would agree with me. And therefore, I'm on Jesus' side. Make sure if you invoke the name of Jesus, you really are representing him. Are you thinking biblically? Are you representing the biblical Jesus if you're going to invoke his name? You know, there are people who do this today. 21st century, they'll invoke the name of Jesus as opposed to the rest of the Bible. So there are people that sometimes go under the, the label red letter Christians. We, we just call it liberal theology. It's the plain name. But some people just say, look, when I open the Bible, I only want... And only believe those letters in red because some printed versions of the Bible have red letters for the words of Jesus. By the way, you know, the original Bible didn't have red letters. It's, it's a fine tool. It's a cool feature in some Bibles. But if you hear that red letter Christian, they're, they're, what they're saying is, I only follow the words attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. And I therefore reject what Paul wrote, what Peter wrote, what James wrote, what John wrote. So they're, they're acting like this is all I do. Do you hear that? It's an unhealthy division. It's unbiblical. It's error to think, that, to think that only the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels are inspired, when in reality, all of Scripture has been inspired by God. So that's your Old Testament. That's into your New Testament. Isn't the, the Gospels? Yes, but also the epistles. All this is inspired. It's God's Word. There's no division in the Scriptures where we pit one part against the other part. So we don't want no part of that. There are some who have that idea. Just give me Jesus and the golden rule. And I won't listen to anything else you have to say. Just give me Jesus and a few statements about loving one another. And that's, the, that's all I want. Listen, that's them pitting themselves against every other thing that God has taught us. But for a church to function well, Paul says you need to be in agreement. You need to be saying the same things about the things that matter. So here at Staples Mill, we talk a lot about these. I'll repeat these regularly. What is it that unifies us as a church? First of all, we're united in our shared love for Jesus. This is an 11 o'clock service and you're here. Some are watching the live stream. Why are you here? It's because you love Jesus. There wasn't some personality up here today that I got to see him or her. It's Jesus is why you're here. And we are, we're united in that love for Jesus. We're enthralled with him. Secondly, what unites us? We are united in our shared confidence in the scriptures. We believe in the accuracy of the Bible. We believe in the authority of the Bible together. And we rally together our love for Jesus, our confidence in the Bible as God's word. And why are we united? We're united in our shared commitment to the Great Commission. That is our mission together. We need to make disciples here and send disciples out who are going to make disciples even at the ends of the earth. So there's to be no division in the church. There'll be occasions where there might be some understandable discussions, debating some theological issues if we need to do that. And so that's, that's something, though, debate we really don't want to have a lot of. But we do want diversity in the church in the right sense. We do want racial diversity in the church. We do want ethnic diversity in the church. We even want various personality types in the church. So don't you love that we're a multi-generational church? Don't you love that we're a multi-ethnic church? Don't you love that we're a church with men and women worshiping side by side and serving Jesus? Don't you love that we're a church with people from different backgrounds 
coming into the church. And aren't you glad we'd all, we all don't have the same personality? I thought about this last week. On Thursday, we were at, at Liberty University for our middle daughter's graduation. And we were in the graduation ceremony for the School of Communication and the Arts. I would estimate about 6,000 people in the, in the basketball arena for that particular part of their graduation exercises. And so there we are, and uh, the, the dean who was doing the introductions, he kind of half-heartedly said to, to not cheer after the person's name's called, but he didn't really say it. He said it in his talk, like, I know in a moment I'm going to say, don't yell out or anything, but you're not going to listen to me, he said, and everybody chuckles. And then he never got around to saying, hey, don't really do that. So it was interesting. We're in the ceremony, and uh, every name, people clap, or they hoop. Or they do something, scream out every name. Now, they did it great at Liberty because it never bled over into the next name. So you just heard a little burst of noise. And then the next name, it was very orderly, went really well. But it created a dilemma in me. I never yell out in public. (laughs) Never. Especially breaking silence. Like, I'm just going to, there's a silence with thousands of people. And I never yell out into that silence. But yet, but I'm thinking everybody's doing every set of parents and grandparents and friends. When that name's called, they let out some kind of noise, screams, something's supposed to happen. And if we don't do it, Lindsay's going to feel like, where where were you guys? (laughs) Right. And I know her personality. She's going to want a little noise there. So I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. And Joy, Joy, Joy and I have very similar personalities. We're quiet, reserved, and she's not one to yell out in public either. But she's a mom. It's Mother's Day. It's mom. She's like, Jim, we have to yell for Lindsay. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I can't do that. So we're having this little whisper discussion. I can't, I can't do that. We have a lot of time because they didn't do this alphabetically. She's a booth. Well, now she's a price. Either way, they didn't do it alphabetically. We had a lot of time for they get to her segment to have them across. So, but here's what I did during this whole time. I'm thinking, okay, I can't. I, okay, I got to do it. I got to do this for Lindsay. But what do I yell? You know, do I just let out a hoop like some people do? Do I screech out like some of these people? Um, do I yell out words like, way to go, Lindsay? You know, what, what do I do? And so I'm, I'm just toiling over this. And I think, I don't think I can do it. And uh, finally, I, I, I discovered I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. So I leaned her joy. I, I, can't, I can't do it. She said, okay, I will yell for Lindsay. And I said, okay, and I'll clap really loud. And... Uh, and that's how it went down. Joy yelled out something like, yay, Lindsay, something like that. Lindsay did love it. You know, it was just, it was really perfect. Here's my point. I'm weird. I'm weird. <laughs> and I would not want this whole church to have my personality. You extroverts make life a lot more fun. And um, so, yes, we, we want to have this diversity in a lot of ways, but we're anchored to the truth. Doyle Chauncey, who founded the SBC of Virginia, our state convention, wrote this when he talked about this partnership of churches. He said, we must identify and stand firm on essential theological and biblical absolutes, but allow for healthy diversity and differences in other matters. And that's our heart here within our church. Oh, we have bedrock biblical truth. It's Jesus alone who saves. The word of God is true, and we're going to anchor ourselves. We talk about being rooted in the truth. But then we've got all kinds of different personalities. We've got as many preferences as we have members of the church. And we're going to be very gracious and patient with one another on those things. Well, we have this beautiful unity here. We need to foster it. We need to protect it. 
as a body of believers. We want to be careful with how we bring up grievances. We want to do that patiently with one another. We want to really evaluate, what are my motives if I have a grievance? Is this a kingdom issue or is this a preference issue? And who's the right person to bring that to? Listen, a safe place to bring any of these grievances is bring, them, bring those things to the pastors. You, you know you're not sowing division. If you just, hey, send in that connection card or call us. Hey, can we meet? Can we talk about something? We'd love to have the conversation. We won't bite at you for having a, a concern. Please bring it to us. Well, this, Paul then focuses now on the truth as he closes out this section. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized no one, none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, his, of its power." So they're divided. Tells them, you need to agree. Got to stop all this dividing up. And we need to make sure we keep our hearts and minds on the gospel. It's not relevant who baptized you. It's not relevant how eloquent somebody was when they preached to you. The issue is the gospel. That Jesus came and died on the cross for us to atone for our sins. It was Jesus who was raised from the dead. This is the gospel we believe. This is the gospel we have to proclaim to others. And so as we think about this and apply it to ourselves, what would threaten our unity? What would threaten it? You know what would threaten our unity? Us. Any one of us, any group of us, we're the ones that can wreck the unity of a church. I'm aware that Satan loves to divide churches. And he does it through people. And so I want you to join me in what I call being joyfully vigilant. So that's, that's my heart here as a pastor. I'm just full of joy. I love what God's doing here. I love the unity of our brotherhood and sisterhood here. I just love that. But I'm also not naive. I know we have this enemy, so I call it being joyfully vigilant, not paranoid, joyfully vigilant. Would you join me in that? And what we want to watch out for, hey, let's not bring sin into the church family. Let's confess our sins to the Lord. Let's repent of our sins that we might walk with Jesus as a holy people. Let's not bring error in. Let's not bring selfishness in, pride in, carelessness in. Yes, some of us are new Christians, but let's grow rapidly. Let's not languish in spiritual immaturity. Let's keep moving forward. It's healthy for the church. And what's at stake? What's at stake? What's at stake is the mission. I was on the IMB's website this week and listen to this mission of theirs. It's our mission as well. They say this, 59% of the world today is considered unreached. Meaning Jesus is largely unknown among 4.7 billion people. Today, hundreds of thousands of people will die without the hope of Jesus. The IMB exists, we'd say our church too. The IMB exists to address this problem, the world's greatest problem, lostness. We send missionaries to the nations to share the good news of Jesus. We join that mission. That's the Great Commission, that we would make disciples here. Send those disciples there who will make disciples there, churches being planted, that people would hear the gospel to be saved. When our eyes are on that mission, that grand mission, it's very difficult to divide up over petty preferences, isn't it? But if we were to let ourselves devolve into that, what happens to those 4.7 billion, in fact, the others, the many others who are lost around the world, we must stay unified. This is that urgent, joyfully so, that we might carry out this work that our Father has given to us. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord, for your work of grace here. We have no pride in the unity that you have brought here. We understand we're to be stewards of it, good caretakers of one another, good stewards of the truth you've given us, but also to love each other well. Lord, help us to be a patient people, to have forbearance with one another in the body. With our various secondary, third, third level differences, help us to be full of grace. And Lord, by your grace, hold us to the truth of your word that we might be faithful until you come again. Thank you for the good news that we've heard today. We want to act on it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.